Welcome to Navigating the Spectrum. I'm your host, Michelle Portlock. This is my second episode. If you happen to miss my first episode, I interviewed my 18-year-old daughter, Brielle Williams, and she was previously diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. So feel free to go to any of the podcast platforms, uh, Apple, Google, Spotify, and you can find my podcast under Navigating the Spectrum with Michelle Portlock. Uh, my social media accounts are just getting started, but you can find me at michelleportlock.com. Make sure you spell Michelle with one L and that'll get you to the right place. Uh, also, currently I'm just on my personal Facebook page, which is also under my name, Michelle Portlock. And again, spell Michelle with one L and you'll be where you need to be. So this next um, podcast, my episode two, is with my friend Christina Koshis. Uh, she is a genetic counselor and she is not only a good friend and someone that I admire, but she's also very intelligent and articulate and she really gives a lot of great pieces of information that I think you'll really enjoy. So without further ado, let's start podcast episode two. who keep her busy and on her toes. She is also a genetic counselor who specializes in neurodevelopmental disorders. She was a senior instructor at Children's Hospital Colorado for 15 years, where she developed and coordinated a number of pediatric specialty clinics like neurofibromatosis, hearing loss, autism spectrum disorder, and rural outreach. She then worked for a genetic testing company for two and a half years, which specializes in genetic testing for children with neurodevelopmental disorders. This position allowed her to provide genetic counseling services to families across the United States that otherwise would not have had access to care. She is passionate about educating patients and providers alike about genetics and genetic conditions so individuals can make the best and most informed decisions for themselves. Christina, welcome to Navigating the Spectrum. We are so excited to have you here today. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Well, let's just jump right in because I have so many questions for you. Genetics and autism are can be a hot button. So um, I want to pick your brain and help our listeners better understand how this all comes together. So here is my first question for you. Kind of simple. What do you do? <laughs> so I am a genetic counselor, uh, and it's a little bit of an obscure profession. Um, at least it was a million years ago when I first started. Now it's become quite popular, and it's one of the fastest growing fields. But I think that the name is a bit of a misnomer. It sort of implies that genetic counselors provide long-term therapy and counseling to people who have genetic conditions when really in actuality, genetic counselors are really educators um, and are really the translator between the complex genetic information that is really geared towards researchers and physicians. And we really try to make sure that there's a segue of education so that families can actually understand what that all means for themselves. And there are a lot of places you can do genetic counseling, you can specialize in things, 
you know, most of my career has been in pediatrics. Um, so I really work with families who have children who have um, a variety of health and or developmental concerns, trying to figure out why they might have those health or developmental concerns so that they can get the best access and best uh, medical management for themselves and their families. I love that. That's a very important aspect of um, for parents when they're trying to parent a child specifically on the autism spectrum. So what what does your job do to help people? You touched on that somewhat already, but I'd like to go into that a little bit more. Sure. I think a lot of times, you know, families are a little caught off guard when a genetic counselor walks into the room or um, if you're doing remote counseling, they might call them. Because one of the first things I tend to hear is, I don't need to talk to anyone genetics. There's nothing in my family that would argue that this is genetic. Um, or I hear that, or I hear, oh, I don't want to know if I'm to blame. This huh. makes me anxious. This mm-hmm. makes me nervous. My, I don't want to know, or my partner doesn't want to know. We don't want to have anything to do with that because we don't want to think about that. And so really my role is to you know, educate families okay, this is what I do. My, my role is to really try to figure out why your child is having so many struggles, why they're not meeting their milestones or why they have these health complications. Because when we are really able to understand the why, we can really tailor their needs. If we don't understand why, then we really can't tailor a person's needs. It's no different than when you are feeling sick and at home and you're trying to figure out, okay, is this a viral infection where there's really no treatment? Or is this a bacterial infection where there is treatment? Or what does this look like from a duration standpoint and prognosis standpoint? And so really that's my role is to try to help families understand why does a child have these problems? Not to assign blame. Most mm-hmm. often, actually, in the field of pediatrics, um, many of the conditions that we see tend to be brand new and not inherited from parents at all. Um, so that really isn't the motivator of genetic counseling, genetic testing, really to try to really get at the root of what's going on so that that treatment and that approach can be tailored and be specific. I really love your response. And here's why. I feel like we can oftentimes place blame on ourselves when what we really need to be focused on is what do I do now? Mm-hmm. What do we do with this information? Um, it's really not helpful to to ruminate on whether it came from us or whether it came from our spouse too much. All we need to know is our child has been diagnosed, and even if it is genetic, that's fine. What do we do next? Yeah, and I find that the question of blame is really a superficial sort of fear. Hmm. The root of it is, how am I going to live? How is my child going to manage this? How are we going to make this our new norm? That's what I find is the underlying of it all. It's the surface of blame, but that's really not what I found to be the root. It's really, how am I going to incorporate this new norm into my life? And it's scary and it's terrifying because it's a road that you weren't expecting that quite honestly, doesn't have a lot of education around. And then even when you do see it in the popular media or in movies, it's not portrayed in a very accurate way. We have things like the Rain Man. That's Mm -hmm. not an accurate portrayal of what autism spectrum is at all. And so if that's your perspective and that's what you think it is, yeah, it's pretty scary. 
and really getting at the blame, is this my fault? It's really not the, that's not the underlying question. It's an easy question to ask, but that's because the harder ones to ask are just hard. So they are I think hard. that's really what I tend to see. I absolutely love how you just sum that up. I feel like uh, sometimes part of the mourning process includes the, where did this come from? You, we as parents are just processing the information. And sometimes you want to be angry at someone and maybe you think it's yourself, but it's really just part of us mourning um, something unexpected and yes. really just learning how to process that information and then moving forward with a little more confidence and a little more uh, understanding as yeah. parents. And I, I think some of it too is it's about control. If you are in a situation where you are feeling out of control because you have been given something, a diagnosis or an unexpected turn in life, one of the fastest and quickest things that people do is to rein in areas that they can control. Mm -hmm. And so blaming and frustration and anger, it's, it's a way of to control because you want, that's an easier emotion to handle is control and yes. fear. Um, or not fear so much, but anger, it's really that fear of the unknown is really a challenge to navigate. And that's the area where you can get the most, um, you know, progress as humans and kind of incorporating a diagnosis, but it's mm -hmm. the scariest. It's a leap of faith. It's diving into a world that you're unfamiliar with and we're unexpected. It is a leap of faith. Mm -hmm. I have another question for you. Um, so this actually just jumps right in from our last question, which is, can a child be diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder through genetic testing? Yeah, that is such a great question. I, I get that question quite often. I think there's a sort of a misunderstanding when kids are being evaluated for autism. They think that a genetic, te genetic test is going to tell them whether their child has autism. A diagnosis of autism is purely a clinical diagnosis, which means that a child goes in for an evaluation. There are certain behavioral and communication criteria that have to be met in order to have a diagnosis of autism. It's really based on these pillars that have been well-established of what that means. So it's what's called a clinical diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Genetic testing simply is addressing what's the underlying root of that diagnosis. And so I will oftentimes tell families that Diagnosis of autism can give access to services and resources and provide some of that, you know, intervention that kiddos need. But whenever I'm looking at it from a kid who has autism, I really view it more as a symptom rather than a true diagnosis. It's a diagnosis for all parental needs, mm -hmm. but I view autism more as a symptom because autism can occur as a greater genetic syndrome. An example would be something like Down syndrome. Autism can commonly occur in Down syndrome but it can also occur as isolated. Um, it can occur as other types of syndromes like fragile X syndrome. So whenever I'm thinking about autism, it's like a symptom. And this sounds trivial and I don't mean to trivialize it, but this is a nice analogy that most parents can understand. I kind of equate it to saying like a runny nose. Autism is like a runny nose. There are all kinds of reasons why you might have a runny nose, whether it's seasonal allergies or polyps or you have a viral infection or bacterial infection, the symptom remains the same, but the underlying root cause of it is very different. And therefore the treatment and the approach of that is going to be very different. And that's where genetic testing can be that beneficial. 
So it doesn't diagnose autism. It simply mm -hmm. tells us what the underlying cause of the autism may be and how can we better address that and treat that. Does that make sense? It does. So really, our child's not going to go in and do a cheek swab and they're going to get a sample back and or the results back from the sample and be told, yep, it's autism. That's not going to happen. No, no not at all. You might be told your kiddo has a genetic condition and autism is a common feature of this condition, mm -hmm. but you still would have to go in for a detailed evaluation. And those evaluations are typically done by psychologists, neuropsychiatrists, um, neurologists sometimes, developmental pediatricians, and they are usually a few hours long um, in duration for that diagnostic workup. So it's, a, it's really genetic testing isn't there to diagnose autism it just may give us an indication that your child may be have an increased risk of having autism. Fascinating. I'm just thinking specifically of Down syndrome and how that's a specific chromosome. And mm -hmm. I know we can't pinpoint that, or it has not been pinpointed at this point for autism. So I think it makes sense to say it is somewhat like a symptom of a greater, of a greater uh, issue that a child might have. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would say you have, you know, like Down syndrome, you have a huge spectrum of kiddos with Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. You have kiddos that can, you know, hold jobs and live semi-independently and do really well and have very few um, health concerns and more milder cognitive impact. Mm -hmm. And then you have other kiddos that have significant health and developmental um, concerns that don't allow them to live as independently as okay. maybe in other you know, pure aged. So, and autism just happens to be one of the symptoms within Down syndrome. Down syndrome has a clustering of symptoms and some kids will have, you know, five or 10 of them. Other kids will have all of them. Other kids may only have a couple of them because, you know, it is a spectrum. Like every genetic condition, there is a spectrum and autism is no different. There's a spectrum with autism. It's true. Uh, but simply autism can just be, we just see it Kids who have Down syndrome, we see autism more often than would be expected to occur outside of Down syndrome. Does that make sense? It does. And I've read it's called comorbid uh, diagnosis, where you can have multiple diagnosis within your main diagnosis. Yes. yes. So here's kind of, here's a question that I have that um, hopefully you can help me uh, sort through. I am wondering, I've been asked before. Do you think that my child has autism because of certain things that I ate during pregnancy or medications I took during pregnancy? Or um, that's why people are saying, is it something that I did or is it genetics? I think that's one of the reasons why parents are looking to know because they're thinking, I don't want my child to struggle with things unnecessarily. If I have children in the future after this, I would like to do everything in my power to help them not have extra struggles such as autism spectrum disorder, things that they have to work through. Yeah. I mean, we do know that there are certain exposures that increase a child's risk for developing autism, things mm -hmm. like lead exposure, which is why we do lead screenings. Mm -hmm. um, and we, I don't know if you've gone into your pediatrician, they ask you, do you live in this kind of a building and what kind of paint? And it's really to get at that question, has there been a lead exposure? There's really been no definitive evidence to suggest that there's anything that a, a woman has taken or eaten during pregnancy or medication necessarily. We know 
you know, environmental factors can contribute to the development of autism. But I think people are most surprised to hear that autism is thought to have a genetic role, or let me rephrase that, genetics plays a role in about 70% of individuals who have autism. So it's much larger than most people realize. That is large. It's really large. Now, but genetics doesn't mean that it's heritable. Genetics simply means there is one or more genes that are contributing to the development of autism that may or may not have been inherited from a parent. And so some people feel like, oh, when you're hearing genetics, that it must be heritable. That doesn't always necessarily the case. It just means that there is a genetic change that maybe happened brand new in that child and wasn't inherited at all. Uh, but nonetheless, autism, there's a genetic basis in about 70% of kiddos that have autism. Uh, now, if can we diagnose that through genetic testing and identify 70%? No, unfortunately, we cannot. We're only able to probably identify 30 to 40% of kiddos who have autism as the genetic basis for their autism, really confirm that. The remaining that are, remain sort of the unknown cause is probably due to what we call a multifactorial type of inheritance, where there's probably a lot of genetic factors, there's a lot of environmental factors, and it's really the combination between those two. And that is true for a lot of conditions just in the general population. That's true for heart disease, for cancer. And so we don't really understand that. We know that that model exists and that it exists for autism, but we don't necessarily have the tools or the knowledge to be able to understand that complex network of genetic and environment all kind of playing a role together. That was kind of a long-winded answer for what you were looking for. No, that was perfect. I loved that. I think that that is actually a question. It answers a question that many parents have. So I appreciate that. So here's another question I have for you, Christina. Does an ASD diagnosis mean that my child will also have intellectual disabilities? Yeah, I think this is one of the fears that parents have, um, especially in younger children that may be newly diagnosed where the their cognitive abilities aren't, we don't really understand them yet because maybe they're only two or three. And so mm-hmm. it's that unknown. And so there's a lot of fear around that. Autism and intellectual disabilities are two separate diagnoses and they don't always occur together. Okay. That all being said, about a third of kiddos who have autism do have intellectual disabilities, and about a fourth will have borderline intellectual disabilities, mm-hmm. where they're just, they're borderline, they're not quite in that kind of true intellectual disability cutoff. Um, but many kids who have autism don't have intellectual disabilities at all. Unfortunately, though, some individuals, some People and you know people who maybe you know neighbors or friends misunderstand that when a child is struggling with communication, um, verbal or nonverbal communication, that it automatically equates to oh they have intellectual disabilities. It's not; they're different. Kids who have autism can communicate. They just communicate in a way that's uh, that's different, different from other individuals. Mm-hmm. And so it's really trying to harness how can we get them to communicate in an effective way to get the needs that they need met. And so there is that misnomer that you're thinking, oh, my kiddo is two and a half and not really speaking. They must have intellectual disabilities. That's not true at all. These kiddos who have autism, can uh, many of them are brilliant. Their mind works in different ways and they're brilliant because of that. 
Um, and so they really are truly two different diagnoses um, in and of themselves. Awesome. I love how you answered that for us. So another question I have for you is oftentimes the child is diagnosed and the parents or parent uh, has the question of what, what do we do next? So that's my question to you. What does a parent do next after a diagnosis has been given? So there are a lot of factors that play a role in what I tell patients and families. Some of it, you know, a lot of it's going to be dependent on the age of the child. Um, A diagnosis of autism in a child who's two, where we don't really know kind of how significant it's going to impact them versus a diagnosis that's made in a 15-year-old where suddenly it's a light bulb and the parents are like, oh, everything just clicked into place now. This all makes sense. Sure. You're going to give different advice because those are two different paths that parents are on. Mm-hmm. You're also going to have a different perspective. What is the overall, you know, is a parent distraught by this diagnosis and feeling like they have nowhere to go and they're just, their head kind of is spinning and they're feeling out of control. Then sometimes it's really being able to identify what can you control right now? What's the something, name something you can control today. Mm. And it allows them to kind of empower them, to calm them. And so the what's next is dependent on that. Maybe it's, what I can control is I'm going to make my child lunch and I'm going to make them something that I think they're going to like. And if they don't, it's okay. We'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's going to be my next thing I can control is, okay, I need to talk, call the school because I need some additional support at the school. What can I do? And so sometimes it's just taking that day by day, controlling moment to moment, minute to minute. Sometimes it's with, you know, the parent who has fully acclimated and it's been a light bulb with a diagnosis. We're like, okay, everything's clicked in. Now I get why, you know, Sarah struggled so much when she was in third grade and fourth grade and fifth grade. This is all making sense to me. Mm -hmm. So what next is going to be, okay, now you're going to want to ensure that they get services from here on out. You're going to want to make sure that you think about um, how can we, you know, really exploit her strengths and then work on her challenges. What does that mean? Are they, she's struggling in social, you know, skills and making friends. Mm -hmm. Then maybe we think about a social skills group. And so really it, really depends on kind of what perspective they're coming from a family. And whenever I'm talking to a family, I'm constantly assessing things and trying to get clues by the way parents phrase things to me or the types of questions that they're asking me. You know, the question can be very revealing um, in addition to kind of checking in with them. Does that make sense? You know, tell me what you're, what, what are the, what's the area that you're struggling the most with? That kind of can help me identify what resources, what paths parents can go down. So I don't really have a concrete answer because it's so dependent on so many factors. But I love that because what you've taken into consideration in responding like this is the individual. It's a very yes. individual diagnosis. It's very individual how parents handle the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. It's very individual what we know about autism spectrum disorder. And also the diagnosis for each child looks differently. And that's why even within a family, right? Yes. Even within a family. Yes. I have two of my four that have been officially diagnosed and they, each of them shows different traits or different parts of that autism spectrum. It's been very interesting to learn um, how different two siblings can be with a similar Mm -hmm. diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So I really liked your response to that. 
So my next question for you is what are some common concerns and possible misunderstandings parents might have when receiving an autism diagnosis for their child? I think the probably the primary misunderstanding that I tend to hear from parents is that my child isn't going to express their love for me mm-hmm. and not going to be empathetic. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to have this very cold child, which as a parent is terrifying. And as a mother in particular, I'm going to be gender here and a mother in particular, we're used to snuggling and cuddling. And you may have a child who has no interest in that. Right. That does not mean that they're cold or that they don't feel empathy. It just means that there's a way that you have to communicate that differently and to understand the cues that they're giving you and what they need and want. I think parents also worried that their child is going to lead a very lonely life because they're not going to be interested in friends and making friendships. And that's not true either, not even remotely. Kids who have autism, kids with autism do want friends. They do want those social kind of interactions. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's ingrained in who we are as humanity. It just means that they may need a little bit more coaching and direction and education about how to foster those relationships because it probably doesn't come as naturally as to someone who doesn't have autism, how to read on those nonverbal cues when someone turns their back, what does that mean? And they may not pick up on those little things that may prevent them from making friendships. Friendships that they very much want, they just need a little extra help in how to identify that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I hear that a lot. Um, I also sometimes will hear, oh, well, you know, maybe they'll outgrow this diagnosis. They'll outgrow autism. That's not true either. Uh, It's a matter of maybe, you know, individuals will better incorporate their diagnosis and how to kind of manage um, you know, again, social interactions better so that when they're adult, it becomes maybe less obvious, I would say, mm-hmm. but autism doesn't go away. Individuals there are plenty of adults that will tell you that they have autism. They love their diagnosis of autism. It makes them who they are, um, but it does not go away with time. And then also the last thing I think I tend to hear, um, is that spectrum. This is as in the name, there is a spectrum mm-hmm. of autism. And, you know, when you have movies like Rain Man, and that's the portrayal of what autism looks like, then it can be really hard to understand that that's not what all autism looks like. And I would bet that probably just reflecting back in my own childhood and being in class with kids, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm really 100% sure the kiddo who sat next to me in third grade probably had autism. We just didn't know it. Right. Um, and so, but was doing well, but there is a huge spectrum. Mm-hmm. And I think that parents really kind of get kind of concerned about what has been portrayed in the popular culture mm-hmm. and not, I think there hasn't been a really good effort to get rid of some of those myths. Right. I think I that agree. probably is a challenge. I, I agree. I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of times people think a spectrum is a sliding scale. We have level one autism, level two autism, level three. So parents and outsiders tend to think, oh, level one, highest functioning, level two, this looks like this. It's it, They seem to want to compartmentalize it when in reality, it's not a scale sliding from left to right. I could have a high functioning child who could also have traits 
of, a, of some traits that a level three autistic child might have. It's yeah. not exclusive that every child that has been diagnosed on the autism spectrum has different traits and different uh, challenges that they are working through and dealing with. And I think it's important to remember that if you get a diagnosis, level two autism, it doesn't mean your child is in a box and this is where they belong. It means this is where your child is currently functioning, but it doesn't mean that they don't have attributes from say a level one autism or level three autism. It's just giving teachers and other practitioners an idea of where your child sits on the spectrum. Not necessarily. Yeah, no, I 100%. I yeah. agree with that. Yeah. I just think instead of looking left to right, it's more a lot of overlapping circles and we can mm-hmm. connect within those overlapping circles. So, uh, okay, Christina. Oh yeah, go well, ahead. I'm just saying that's true for like a neurotypical kiddo, right? Mm-hmm. There, there's not, you don't have like a quote unquote an athlete child or a theater child. They never really work into those cookie cutter molds, true. right? You might have a kiddo that's pretty athletic that also likes to do theater that also maybe you know is terrible at school, or you might have someone <laughs> who is great at school but is also a super athlete. I mean, no one fits mm-hmm. into those little cookie cutter boxes, right? In neurotypical or not, it doesn't matter. We don't ever fit in that. That's the greatest part about humanity, right? It that's is. What, what makes us so diverse and fantastic. <laughs> it really is. I'm glad you mentioned that. So as we're talking about this, I kept thinking, what advice would you give to parents who are coming to see you and might need a little of your expertise? What advice would you give them? I would say give yourself grace. Mm. That there is no right or wrong way that everyone comes at a diagnosis and incorporating that diagnosis into their new norm in different ways. And that you may have a day, an hour, a week where you feel like you've slipped back and you have this kind of grief that kind of resurfaces all over. So you might be doing really, really well. And then you have this grief that kind of knocks you down to the ground again. And that's okay. That's normal. That's a normal process. Hmm. You, whenever a diagnosis of autism or any other genetic condition is given, you are grieving what you thought would be the norm of your life. Mm -hmm. And you're having to readjust what that norm looks like. Mm -hmm. And so there is a normal grieving process that happens. And to just be thoughtful and give yourself grace and to just let it be okay if you want to break down. I would say make sure that you identify people in your life that can be supportive and provide yes. you respite if you need it, mm-hmm. a crying shoulder if you need it, a, I don't know, some kind of moment of just levity. I mean, I personally use humor a lot in my life. Um, and so for me, I try to uh, tell families to do the same. Find the people that make you feel good about yourself mm-hmm. and about what's going on. and reach out for help. It is not all on you. Parenting is not a one-man show. It, you, it does take a village and you need to identify who is in your village that can give you the greatest amount of support that you need. And that might be different people, right? That might be one friend that's a good time friend where you just want to get away, or it might be another friend that offers you 
you know, support of let me take your child for an hour. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's okay to have that. It's not a sign of weakness. Um, and I also think there's no timetable where you have to say, okay, in six months, this is going to be, I'm going to fully acclimate to this. (laughs) There's no timetable. Everyone comes at this differently. Everyone has different Mm -hmm. perspective. Um, individuals, you know, I would actually even argue sometimes when a child is diagnosed, a parent will go, oh, I actually have some of those same traits. Uh-huh. And so sometimes you're getting a dual diagnosis all at the same time. <laughs> so you're having That's to true. kind of manage that too. Uh-huh. So it's definitely, you know, all about just patience and grace, uh, which is easier said than done. But I Two do small love words, but big meaning, big meaning. And what I love about that is something that you said that it's not as though we are receiving a diagnosis. We mourn the diagnosis and then we're fine forevermore. It doesn't really work that way. It is a process and we have good and bad days, uh, good and bad weeks. It just, it just is part of the parenting experience in general, and particularly when you have children with extra needs. So I think it is, I like your, I like what you said. I think being patient and kind with ourselves and forgiving of ourselves and the mistakes we will make because we are parents and we're human and we all make those mistakes and to just learn from them and to move forward and keep pushing forward. Yes, I would agree. And we'll all have setbacks. I mean, I think some parents, when they go to a doctor's visit, they're kind of like geared up, like, okay, I know what's going to happen. They they kind of put their armor on. But what ends up knocking parents down is when they're at the playground Mm -hmm. and their child doesn't do something that another child does or their child behaves in a way that may be embarrassing, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. I don't have a child with autism, but I guarantee you I have walked out of Target with my child screaming over my shoulder (laughs) and embarrassed and mortified. No, never. (laughs) (laughs) And so I feel like, you know, those are the moments that I think parents are particularly hard on themselves because Mm -hmm. they feel like they have failed as a parent because they might have a moment of embarrassment or they might have a moment where like, gosh, I was doing so well though. That mm-hmm. doesn't mean you're not still doing well. You are doing well. It's sure. a little step back with a little great big leap forward. Mm. And it's okay to have that. That's good. Mm-hmm. I agree. Christina, I cannot thank you enough for joining us today on Navigating the Spectrum. Your knowledge and expertise has definitely blessed the lives of those that are listening, particularly mine. So I appreciate you not only as an expert, but as a friend. So thank you so much. Uh, Thank you for having me. It was such a joy and pleasure. Oh, thank you. I might be calling you again. (laughs) (laughs) Anytime. I'm always around. (laughs) 